And they're not always called parables by Bible interpreters. That could be because it specifically doesn't say it's a parable. However, looking at it, I'm, I, it's got all the traits of a parable. And I think that's the way we need to approach it. Uh, we don't want to we don't want to read into every detail, but draw the particular singular contrast that he has for us here. And it's all going to go back to what he just said and what we just studied last week. So let's look at the verses. The Lord speaking. But be sure of this. If the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. Just two verses. It's a follow-up of what he just taught. People went about their everyday business, just like in the days of Noah, marrying, giving in marriage, eating, drinking, just life. It's just a normal life, and then bang, some are taken. <clears throat> so he's emphasizing, contrasting, giving us a, a, a picture of how this is going to be. So let's talk about it. The parable obviously refers to Christ's coming, but not to his coming at the end of the tribulation. And there's two reasons for this. Because we just read, back up, we just read, I went the wrong way, back up, we just read that we should be what? On the alert. Why? Well, we don't know when he's coming. It's going to be unknown. It's going to be sudden, unexpected. That's not going to be the case with the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation when he comes to defeat the armies of Antichrist, the Battle of Armageddon, because that's going to be, as we studied previously, an event that's going to be witnessed by the whole world at the very end, the slow and deliberate descent. The whole world's going to mourn. And besides that, he laid out all the, the signs leading up to that, especially those in the second half of the tribulation period. And you, you can go all the way back to Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. And so there's many, many signs of the coming at the end of the tribulation to establish the kingdom. There are no signs of the rapture of the church. <coughs> so, this parable refers to Christ, if this parable refers to Christ coming at the end of the tribulation, then why does the thief appear suddenly and unexpectedly? <coughs> Secondly, since verse 44 makes it clear that believers must always be ready for the coming of Christ, why would they need to why, why would they need to do this or do so in order to keep the thief from breaking into the house? That's the key to understanding this two-verse parable. That is, who is the thief? 
I remember many, many years ago, back when I was a college student, there was a Christian film that was distributed. I suppose in those days it was one of those, you know, big regals and all that, but I remember watching it uh, in the Christian Fellowship of the college I attended. And the title of it was A Thief in the Night. And it discussed and pictured the, the rapture of the church. Some, uh, that title comes from this verse. Those who had the viewpoint that this is talking about Jesus coming at the end of the tribulation, they, they emphasize the fact that the householder is the one who is going to be rescued or uh, vindicated when the Lord comes at that second. Advent. But the householder doesn't benefit in what we just read. Let's back it up again. Be sure of this. If the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed the thief to break into the house. Why would he be on the alert? Because he didn't want to have his belongings stolen. There's nothing here that says the householder benefits from the thief coming, which is what you have to see if you put this at the end of the tribulation period. So, does the thief come to remove something valuable? Yes, he does. Thieves always break in to take something valuable. So, does the thief come to remove something valuable, then flee before he's discovered? Yes. So who is the thief? And here's where you've got to remember, this is a parable. We can't draw implications from every aspect of the parable. Don't make a walk on all four. <laughs> the parable does not fit the coming of Christ at the close of the tribulation but the rapture of the church. The thief does, in fact, here represent the coming of Christ. The thief represents Christ. Now, some people get all freaked out about that. You know, how, how could Jesus refer to himself as a thief? It's, it, has, it's not, it doesn't have moral implications here. It's a picture. It's a contrast. The point of the contrast is that Jesus is coming to remove something valuable and it's going to upset the householder. <clears throat> Satan represents the head of the house. I don't get freaked out about that either. <laughs> and remember what we studied when we studied the parables of Matthew 13. We'll come back to that later. The believers are the valuables that the thief, Christ, removes from the house. Remember this? We looked at this chart a number of times. We studied the parables of Matthew 13. God, the ultimate authority, delegated authority over this world, his creation to Adam. He gave Adam dominion. But Adam when he sinned allowed Satan to usurp that authority 
he bowed down to the will of Satan and fell into sin versus following the will of God and retaining his dominion. Satan then became the god of this world, as he described. First Corinthians chapter 4, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I believe it is. This is why Jesus, when he was tempted, was tempted by Satan in this fashion. If you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. Satan is the god of this world. He, he listen, we live and exist in a hostile environment. Amen. We as Christians dwell in a world that is controlled by satanic forces. Now we, we get so, I know I do, I, I get so surprised when certain things happen in our culture, and then I stop thinking about it, well why not, you know? People that don't know the Lord are under, under the cross. It's satanic. Yeah. It's evil. But the parables of the kingdom, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is life. And he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And we identified this, and I probably should have put this chart up, but I didn't think to do it. Remember the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 13, those parables, the time frame is from the first coming of Christ, to the second coming. Now, the rapture is in between, but he didn't come to earth, the rapture. He just took up his people. But first to second coming. From his resurrection and establishment of the church, his ascension from that point to the end of the tribulation period. Satan will be the god of this world. That's why the Antichrist can do what he does. The kingdom of heaven also Pertains, contains a beachhead, a foothold in this world, which is practically, you know, in this dispensation here, equivalent to the church, the body of Christ. We don't answer to the God of this world. We answer to God Almighty. And we have certain obligations and, uh, and so forth. It's his children and it's part of his kingdom. But remember, the world exists, the whole of the world exists in both wheat and tares. Okay? Eventually, when we get to the millennium, which follows the second coming, God takes back all authority over this world. Satan is bound, eventually judged, and God has completely righted everything that went wrong with Adam's sin. So, now backing up, the householder again. Satan represents the head of the house. He's the god of this world. There's some people in the house that are valuable. That the thief, Jesus, comes to get and carry away. Before he enters into this process, taking it all back, which begins with his judgments in the tribulation period and comes about with his second coming, the establishment of the kingdom. So, here's a question. 
back to verse four, verse 36 if you're looking at your Bible. I saw this last week. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Why do you suppose Jesus said that? Ultimately, we don't know the answer. The angels of heaven don't know when he's coming to the church. God the Son, at least while he was on earth, on earth did not know. You say, how can he not know? He's omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's God. It was a decision by God the Father to keep that. That's a mystery. We can't fully fathom, but... So, no, no believers on earth know. The angels do not know. I just suspect it doesn't uh, really matter because there are no signs. It's imminent. It could be at any moment. Why did you tell us that only the Father knows the precise time of the rapture? Big answer, honest answer is I don't know. But I've run across some some ideas that I've seen in print that I think they have some validity. <coughs> but we can't we can't hold this as a dogmatic reason. But remember what happens when the when the rapture occurs at the last what? Trump? The angels involved in that. If you read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. 13 to 18, I believe it is. We already have seen in Matthew 13, the angels will be involved in the last judgment. They'll be, we'll see that again in a couple weeks here as we study this. The theory that some have come up with is that the angels will have some crucial role in the rapture of the church, just like in the second coming of Christ when he uses the angels. And angels are spirit beings. Satan was once an angel. He's a fallen spirit being. He's a demon. There is some reason God doesn't want Satan to know. That might be the ultimate reason. It's, I think, a pretty good explanation. But thank you for what it is. Some things you just have to leave at that, at that level. Application, yes. Yeah, back to that, that knowing the hour, and only the Father knows. And this is just, was helpful to me. It's a video we saw that correlated the Nazarite uh, engagement and wedding process that tracks. I'm very familiar I'm just going to talk about that in a few minutes. Okay. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Please finish. Well, essentially... To make a long story short, uh, the wedding, you know, the wedding of the, once we get to heaven was kind of patterned after the Nazarite process. And often the, the young man would add a room onto the house and how the bride and her bridesmaid always had to be on the ready because once the father thought the room was ready, that the couple was ready, only he would decide when the wedding was going to happen, and that was that. 
that made a lot of sense to me. Uh, anyways. My wife and I watched that same film a number of months ago. Okay. And it specifically pertains to the next thing we come to next week, which is the parable of the ten virgins, which is what you were describing. Yep. So you kind of you were the spoiler for some of these. Other <laughs> <laughs> the but not enough, not enough that they shouldn't watch it. But at the end today, I was going to suggest everybody go and watch that this week in preparation for next week. But it does back up into verse thirty-six, just like you observed. Uh, it is intriguing. It really is. Okay, application. For this reason, said Jesus, you, this, this is this is the verse right out of what we just read, verse 44. Here's the application. He gives it to us. For this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. Now, this has led to a lot of Bible teachers over the years emphasizing the fact that we as Christians need to be ready. I know we've all heard it, I've heard it. Who knows, going back far enough, I probably even preached it, I, I don't know. But it's, it's, a common, it's a common concept. And it's oftentimes taught or preached in the vein of, you know, you don't want to be found doing certain things when Jesus comes back. You don't want to be embarrassed. You know what? We, we need to be watching for his coming at any moment. So anything we ever do that's embarrassing to us as Christians could be that moment. I can think of a lot of times in my life I would have, you know, I would have been embarrassed if it had been the moment Jesus came back. But, but you know what? I was embarrassed anyway. Because the Spirit of God told me I was wrong. I didn't need the prospect of a second coming to, to point out my sin. So, but, but sometimes we, we get this, we, we hear these things presented a certain way, and we, we almost become fearful of Jesus coming. No, 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 no. That's our hope. That's our joy. That's our peace. That's our assurance. That should bring a smile to your face every time you think about it. Don't let someone take you take that away from you. When he says ready, he means prepared. How are we then to be prepared for the second coming of Jesus Christ? By being saved. We get prepared when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the last NFL football game that I got to attend, and the only reason I got to attend was because I had a, a man in the church who belonged, or he worked for a big company, they had private supplies, and every time nobody in the company could use it, he'd let me go. The last time I went, I took a friend, and we were late because I forgot the tickets. <laughs> so an hour from home, we had to turn around and go back and get the tickets. So we were late arriving. And I'd always gotten there early because I get this thing about I, I just, if I'm not at least 15 minutes early, maybe 30, I feel like I'm late. I just I'm obsessive about it. So I'm not in a good mood anyway. And, and we get me late trying to and believe me, we have all kinds of struggles in the park area. I think we missed the whole first quarter. Now, 
why did we end up late? Why did we have a problem? I wasn't prepared. I didn't have a ticket. The only people that enjoyed the first quarter are the people that had the tickets. <laughs> Thank the Lord I had them. It just took me a while to, you know, get them. But here's the thing. When I go to a ball game, I go like I am. I mean, if, if I go to a baseball game and you're sitting outside, I'll put a hat on. It might be my team's hat. But I don't wear jerseys. I don't shake pom-poms. I don't paint my face blue or red or green. I am just not a fanatical fan. Anybody can look at me and say, you're not ready to go watch football. Yes, I am, but I have a ticket. They don't stop you at the gate and say, you don't look like an avid fan. You can't come in. No, they just want to know if I got the ticket. That's it. That's what he's talking about. The ticket. If you know Jesus is your Savior, the, the second coming should be a joyful and anticipated reality. All right, let's go on to the second reality. Okay. Jake? Yeah. Yeah, the, the other application for me is that it's kind of like don't miss the bus. Yes. <laughs> it's a timing thing, like you say. And so who who else around you is going to miss the bus? Right. Because we haven't got them ready. Yeah. And we understand what this is talking about. This is a very critical reality. And uh, I think the next thing he says might touch on that. So here's another parable. <clears throat> who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom the master has put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? Please do not associate this parable with the previous parable. It's just a different one. He's not expanding on the first one. The householder in the first parable is Satan. The householder in the second parable is Jesus. Okay? <laughs> This is easy to understand when you read it with, you got that kind of perspective to start with. So he's talking about the slaves, and, and, and we are the slaves. We're the servants. So who then is a faithful and sensible slave or servant who the master put in charge of his household to give them their food at a proper time? This is just, this is just cultural. This is what they use slaves to do. <laughs> Don't read into that. Don't expand a parable. Verse 46, blessed is that slave who his master finds so doing when he comes. Doing his job. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. Uh, a household slave, a manager uh, for the wealthy homeowner does his job well. He gets more responsibilities. <clears throat> Better situation, right? We understand that. But if that slave, in his heart, if that slave says in his heart, my master's not coming for a long time, I can goof off, you know? The boss is gone, I don't have to do my work. I can sit down, take it easy. You take an hour lunch break, and uh, another 30 minute uh, coffee break an hour later, I can do whatever I want. My master's not coming for a long time, and he begins, and worse than, worse than just not doing his work, he begins to mistreat those that he is over. 
and he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. He's just totally out of control. The master of that slave will come on the day when he does not expect him, and in an hour which he does not know. Now, this might be confusing, the next verse, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites in the place in that place, there will be weeping and majesty. We know that describes hell. We know that describes eternal punishment. There's plenty of places where Jesus used that analogy. So, the contrast here is between a faithful and sensible slave and an evil one. Go back to the wheat and the tares. In this kingdom now, within this kingdom of heaven, there are those that are true believers and some that are false professors. That's, that's what he's picturing again for us. There's plenty of people that claim to be Christians, plenty of people in Christian organizations, plenty of people in churches that have never been born again, they do not serve Jesus Christ, they do not have a personal relationship with him, they've not placed their faith in him, they've not received him as Savior, however you want to describe it, but on the outside looking at them, they profess they are, they pretty much fit in. So he's describing two types of individuals one is ready to go, one's not. So he, that's the logical step next, but the parable changes. God is the one who signs the responsibilities. He's the householder, and there's two types of people basically in his house during this time, right? So this is the parable of the faithful and evil servants. Those who enter into faith are appointed tasks. Now, I probably should have said those who enter into true faith and profess they do. Maybe, but really it's only the ones who really truly have faith that God's given them a task. The others are false, falsely identified. But those of us who truly know the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a job to do. I used to love that old Western. I, I grew up in it. Well, that's ancient history. Any of you remember the lawman? The lawman who came with the sun? There was a job to be done. Okay? In a sense, we're the lawman. Okay? God, God doesn't have us here because he goofed up and we're just trapped here. We have a purpose here. So we've been, we have appointed tasks. I'm going to go into that in a moment. It should be the goal of all servants to be faithful and sensible. By the way, the word sensible means mindful of the Lord's, the master's interests, and how to, how to accomplish that, to be wise. Faithfulness describes the proper attitude toward the Lord, and sensibleness describes the proper attitude toward the task. The Lord's servant, servant should be doing his work until he comes. And doing, the, doing God's work now will determine our future position and responsibility in the kingdom, which is exactly what the parable says. The slave did well, a simple task. The master gives him 
authority over his house, more responsibility. The rewards that we will receive in the kingdom for doing what we are supposed to do as God's children will be ruling with him. We will be administrators, rulers. We will have authority in the kingdom. There's other parables and verses which say the same thing. In contrast to the faithful servant, the wicked servant will be punished in hell. So we know that's a false professor from that alone. The wicked servant is not a true believer, proven by the fact he's not doing the work that God has assigned to believers to do. That's just proof of the pudding. Works, works don't get us into heaven, but works prove faith. Wicked servants, the wicked servants in this parable are left to go through the tribulation and eventually suffer eternal punishment. So what is the application? Again, we'll go right back to the verse because Jesus gave us the application. He said, blessed is that slave who his master finds so doing when he comes. The reward that we receive will be based on our faithfulness as a servant. Now look. Most people get hung up right here on the fact that, well, there's not much I can do for the Lord. I, I can't do this. I can't be a teacher. I can't be a leader. I can't be a deacon. I can't be this. I can't do that. Somebody else does it better than me. So surely I'm not going to be in line for much of a reward. Forget that. God's concerned about your faithfulness to whatever it is he's given you to do, just like this servant. Not, not how much you did, but that you're doing what you've been given or assigned to do. There will be people that will be highly rewarded, I'm convinced, in eternity, that are never much noticed now. Because people don't see them as doing anything that they are. Let's go back to the football game. Only the people with tickets get in. It doesn't matter how much of an avid fan you are or how many times you paint your face or put on a dog fit mask or whatever it is you want to do or a football helmet or three jerseys. If you don't have a ticket, you don't go in. But among those who go in that have tickets, not everybody sets up in the prime seats either, right? right? By way of analogy, there will be those Christians who will be rewarded that will have the higher rank, responsibility in the, in the kingdom. But this is about, the second parable here today is about doing, it's about being rewarded for what we do, which is a great blessing and comfort to know. The first one was about entry. Okay.
anybody like to add another thought and have a question? Just something you turn to, you want to say, be helpful? Now's the time. Some of you do that all along, which by the way is great. I just like to have time at the end for those who may have wanted to ask a question or say something that didn't take the opportunity. Alright, but here's your homework. The film is called Before the Wrath. That's what we were talking about earlier. It's put out by a company called Ingenuity Films. Kevin Sorbo, the noted Christian actor, narrates that this kind of documentary form. It's live acting but he narrates what's going on. Now, you can rent it on Prime Video, which I absolutely despise to do, so instead we pay to have PureFlix anyway, but uh, if you have a PureFlix subscription, well, I've just signed up for it recently because I'm so tired of looking for something to watch and uh, found a very, very good price. And uh, so when I remembered we watched this some time back, we must have rented it, uh, I wanted to recommend it to you, and I checked, and if you have PureFlix, it's on there. It won't have to cost you any more to watch it. Just maybe other places. You can find it on Hoopla. What's that? Hoopla, which is from the library. Anyone has a Hoopla? Hoopla, Hoopla has library. it. Yeah, Hoopla has it. Yeah. And also, uh, Hoopla. Well, yeah, Hoopla. And YouTube. It's on YouTube. I tried YouTube, and there's a bunch of stuff about it on there. Uh, and the whole thing might be on there, but if it is, it's because somebody else got the right to publish it. And I wasn't sure whether they had that right or not, so I, I wasn't going to put it up. But it's probably fine there. Before the wrath, basic premise that the Lord's second coming is all wrapped around and couched in the context of the Galilean wedding customs. And what do we come to next week? Chapter 25, verse 1, the parable of the ten virgins, all the way down through verse 13, which is all about a Galilean wedding. So if you watch this, you'll be ultra prepared for next week's discussion. If you don't happen to see it, we'll talk about it anyway. But this is so well done. And I understood things that more clearly than I ever had about it by watching it. So I don't know. All right, anything else?